Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, we're traveling to the Orange Free State Republic capital, Bloemfontein, with the Lord Roberts's army, and it's not something to boast about. The capture of the town is also known as a once-off. It's the first and last time that journalists seized a capital in the midst of a war. Bloemfontein was to prove to be a disease-ridden death trap for over 500 British soldiers who'd survived the campaign thus far, marched overland for hundreds of kilometres only to die of typhoid infection in the filthy mud of the capital city. Which is ironic, because Bloemfontein means flower spring. It's March 1900. The new century has brought with it a continuation of the war between the Boer and British in South Africa. In the previous podcast, we heard how Transvaal President Oom Paul Kruger arrived at the Free State Front in a vain attempt to shore up the morale of the Boer troops. But the day he arrived at the front at Poplar Grove on the 7th of March, Lord Roberts had mobilized his large army and ordered a three-pronged attack on the Boer lines along the Mudder River. If you glance at a map, you'll see the river flows in a westward direction to the north of Bloemfontein, and the Boers were following the river as they moved back to the Free State capital. They had stopped at Poplar Grove, where General Christian de Vett had thrown up the usual trench defence network, which stretched around 24 kilometres along both sides of the river. Kruger was forced to flee, along with thousands of Boer commandos, as the British column rolled towards Poplar Grove. Kruger just evaded capture, as we heard in the previous podcast. However, the British made a few mistakes, particularly General French, who slowed his cavalry charge instead of hurrying after the departing Boers. On the evening of the 7th of March, the Boers reached Abraham's Kraal at the junction of the Mora River and the Kraal Spreit, a small tributary stream. General Christian de Vett writes, In the evening, we came to Abraham's Kraal a farm belonging to Mr. Charles Hotel, some 18 miles from Poplar Grove. The enemy were camped about an hour and a half's ride from us. Joining the burghers that night, as he withdrew to Pretoria, was Wurm Paul Kruger. General Delaray was also at Abraham's Kraal. He had arrived with 1,000 Zarp police and was supposed to give support to Christian de Vett. Together with Kruger, they were enveloped in a cloud of dust from the wagons and horses being driven helter-skelter towards Bloemfontein. Kruger lifted his heavy stick, threatening the Boer soldiers who were retreating in disorder. Then he ordered Delaray to send a detachment of his Zarps mounted police to shoot any of the retreating soldiers who attempted to pass. This failed. The Zarps wouldn't open fire on their own men, and the rout continued. Kruger was also aware of the symbolism of the Boers' last stand at a place called Abraham's Kraal. The biblical ring was clear. Abraham's. He ordered this to be a place of resistance, but even that was a forlorn cry in the midst of what was happening. They all had a restless night, and the next morning, the 8th of March, the burghers awoke before dawn with one overriding desire to get away. The vet was equally busy forcing the Boer commandos to take up defensive positions at Abraham's Kraal and further south on the road to Bloemfontein at a place called Driefontein. Trenches were dug once more by the black workers before de Vett rushed to Bloemfontein to meet with government officials. Things were moving fast. Lord Roberts had maintained the three-column formation as he advanced, and the northernmost column was led by General French and his cavalry. French stumbled across Delaray, and Roberts ordered French to bypass this area to the south, but Delaray guessed they'd do just that, and he had a plan. 
So on the 10th of March, Delaray and 1,500 men held up General French's 10,000 men, and it was only a severe barrage by artillery that dislodged the Boers. The casualty rate was high for such a small skirmish. 300 Boer commandos and 400 British soldiers killed or wounded at Trifontaine. This last-ditch battle gave the Boers some hope as Roberts's column halted. But the next day it continued, and now Roberts had changed his plan. He knew that if he seized Bloemfontein quickly, the large Boer force, which was moving north, would be cut off from their logistics in the town. He ordered French to ride full tilt for the large hill called Brandkorp, around eight kilometres southeast of the centre of Bloemfontein. This would cut off any commandos arriving from Colesburg, and French galloped in the midday sun to secure this hill. He arrived at dusk. 400 Boers garrisoned on the hill panicked and fled. The Boers' arrival back in Bloemfontein caused more panic and fear. No attempt was made to recapture the corp. Roberts sent a prisoner with a message for the 4,000 inhabitants left in the Free State capital. Many were English-speaking, and it was also full of Boer moderates who wanted the war ended, so Roberts' message of protection for the inhabitants was well received. It was either that, or they'd be blown to smithereens. The fall of Bloemfontein on the 13th of March was an anticlimax. I will deal with the failed attempt by Kruger at diplomacy in one of the next podcasts. It was a clumsy affair, which may well have worked had Kruger and the Free State President Stein used more subtle communication. General Christian de Vett was now shattered by the turn of events. He had given the inevitable general's pep talk on the evening of the 12th of March, but hours later, when he rode to inspect the trenches, he discovered many had deserted their positions, particularly the unit led by Commandant Welbach. He wrote in his book, Three Years' War, The morning of the 13th of March dawned. Hardly had the sun risen when the English, in the entrenchments which Commandant Welbach had deserted, opened a flank fire on our nearest positions. First one position, then another was abandoned by our burghers. Few made any attempt to defend their posts, and in spite of my efforts, they retreated to the north. Thus, without a single shot being fired, Bloemfontein fell into the hands of the English. President Steyn had already fled north with one of the last trains to get away before the British blew the line. At 8 o'clock on the morning of the 13th of March, Lord Roberts and his staff breakfasted at the country estate on the outskirts of Bloemfontein, belonging to President Steyn's brother, whose wife served him fresh milk and butter. A member of the press corps then rode up with the good news that in response to Roberts's threat to bombard the city, unless they capitulated immediately, the population had surrendered. It was also bizarre because it was the press who were the first into Bloemfontein, which was appropriate. Roberts was an oddity. He really believed the pen was indeed mightier than the sword and had kept good relations with the media, unlike General Redverse Buller and Lord Kitchener. The latter would literally have preferred the journalists shot. He hated them so much. So it was H.A. Gwynne of Reuters, Percival Landon of The Times, and one Banjo Patterson of the Sydney Morning Herald who galloped into the city where Boers leapt off bicycles and then threw up their hands in surrender. It was the first and only case in the history of war that journalists took a town or city. Shortly behind them was an echelon of the telegraph unit which had unrolled a giant wooden drum of telegraph cable all the way into Bloemfontein before they realised that they were alone and far ahead of their colleagues. 
Field Marshal Roberts arrived around midday in full pomp. Lord Kerry, the war minister's eldest son, watched Roberts ride into town. Received with much enthusiasm by few remaining inhabitants, chiefly English women who all insisted on shaking hands with the chief, men walked alongside singing Soldiers of the Queen and other popular airs. Some had taken drink. Thence to Stain's presidency, crowds sang National Anthem as we entered gate, hoisted small Union Jack worked by Lady Roberts on flagstaff in garden. Black and white civilians then began to loot the Boer artillery barracks, celebrating freedom until Roberts ordered troops to stop the chaos. So it all looked good on the surface, a brilliant bit of propaganda created by the yellow press in Great Britain. Everyone happy? Well, not entirely. Poplar Grove had appeared a British victory, but Roberts blamed his subordinates, particularly General French, for failing to chase the Boers down. The generals in turn blamed Roberts for what became a logistics nightmare. The British troops who marched into Bloemfontein were in a mess. Their clothes were in tatters. Many weren't even wearing boots. They were marching barefoot. Furthermore, they'd filled their water bottles in the Moda River, which had been soiled by corpses and rotting animal carcasses. They had been forced to eat half rations after their logistics train was attacked weeks before by Christian de Vette. Their bodies were worn through from a march of 500 kilometres over three months and in the middle of South Africa's rainy season. To ensure proper press coverage, Lord Roberts ordered the shuttering of the English paper called The Express, which was anti-British, and a new paper was launched called The Friend, which immediately began churning out appropriately pro-British propaganda. The Friend was actually run by British war correspondents in their spare time. They in turn had roped in well-known authors, including the unofficial laureate of the empire, Rudyard Kipling, who arrived in the Free State shortly before Bloemfontein fell. Black free staters hoped that the arrival of the British would mean the yoke of Boer oppression would be thrown off. They were sorely disappointed. Within a few days, 27 black men had been sentenced to five lashes each by the British, and the sentence was carried out by the same Boer native police, all because the black citizens were found without their passbooks. The use of passbooks controlling movement of black South Africans in the future would be a source of a huge amount of anger and political and social action during apartheid. After the lashing, the British congratulated the Boer police for their excellent work in imposing harsh discipline against black South Africans. As usual, the British description of what was really a racist attitude was couched in the imperial tones of the time. Much of these goings-ons, though, were recorded by the men themselves. It's interesting to note that the Anglo-Boer War was one of the first where rank-and-file soldiers took advantage of the new mass literacy as education improved in Britain, so working-class men and women conversed at a level never seen before during any war up until then. Their grandfathers during the Crimea and great-grandfathers during the Peninsula campaigns relied on correspondents and officers to keep loved ones informed through official notes. They were, however, not allowed to write of the horrors. So many letters flowed with words like, Dear old chum, remember me to your mum and dad and Bert. Or, if you see anyone who knows me, please give them kind regards. Lord Roberts ordered that the column halt in Bloemfontein instead of continuing its march in order to recover from the two-month toll. He also wrote a letter himself to Queen Victoria in which he made a significant miscalculation. And he wrote, 
The Orange Free State is rapidly settling down. The proclamations I have issued are having the desired effect, and men are laying down their arms and returning to their usual occupations. It seems unlikely that the state will give much trouble. The Transvaalers will probably hold out, but their numbers must be greatly reduced, and I trust it will not be long before the war will have been brought to a satisfactory conclusion. Roberts was suffering from a lack of insight into South Africa and did not understand the complexities of colonialism while he knew less than nothing about the tenacity of Afrikaner nationalism and Boer resilience. But his subordinate in Natal, Redvers Buller, did, and he told Roberts that it was likely the Boers would turn to a form of guerrilla warfare if they lost their big cities. Buller warned that Roberts was fighting a civilised war in an uncivilised country, and that this would be a trial of strength between people and not just armies. It would be a war against communities spread across an enormous territory where centralised government was anathema to most of the people, black and white. Buller may have made many errors during his tenure as the commander-in-chief, but one thing he did know was how Africans fought. He sent a letter to Roberts in which he wrote, To every man, his own home is the capital. There is no commanding centre by which the whole country can be brought into subjection. There are living organisms which can be divided into a multiple of fragments without destroying the individual life of each fragment. But Roberts ignored Buller, believing his own intelligence, which indicated the Free State Boers were beaten because their capital had fallen. Roberts had other issues to face. In the Cape, for example, a raiding party of around a 1,000 Boers led by General Steenkamp had set alight a local Afrikaner rebellion in settlements in the northern Cape and northwest Karoo, the semi-desert areas of the country. By the 17th of March, Boers had abandoned their posts south of the Orange River after blowing up the bridges that linked Bloemfontein with the ports in the Cape. Norval's Pont Bridge was gone. No trains could travel between Cape Town or Port Elizabeth and Bloemfontein. Bethuli Bridge had been destroyed, and that meant no trains could travel between East London and Bloemfontein. But if Roberts thought the Boers were a spent force, he was seriously misguided. There were around 15,000 Boers still occupying British territory, with 1,500 others under the command of General Snayman surrounding Mafeking, which was besieged, and 21,000 other Boers in the Free State who had not surrendered. There were another 5,000 led by the Vet and De La Rey, and were somewhere north of the Free State capital, and another force under General Dutoy north of Kimberley, and 4,000 men under General Ulufir somewhere in the northeast. So we can see that despite Roberts's belief the Boers were defeated in the Free State, it wasn't that simple. Roberts then heard that General Ulufir was indeed moving east of Bloemfontein, near the Lesotho border, but he failed to act immediately. Roberts was tired, so were his men. General French was eventually dispatched but missed the 50-kilometre-long column of trek oxen under General Ulufir, who managed to escape to the north, another golden opportunity wasted. The reality was British and Plumfontein were dangerously isolated. A single-track narrow-gauge railway ran south but stopped at the broken bridges. Roberts failed to request more rolling stock from the British government. He was that old-fashioned. Finally, on the 20th of March, he realised the danger and cabled for 25 engines and 300 wagons as a matter of urgency. These, however, would not arrive for many months. Roberts was criticised heavily during and after the Anglo-Boer War for his failure to plan the logistics of this campaign properly, leading to much suffering amongst the soldiers who didn't have enough of anything, including food and clothing. 
every .303 round, six-inch shell, biscuit and boot had to travel along that tiny narrow gauge line and across the blown bridges, be unloaded and loaded back on the other side. Horses were also required in their thousands, and they continued arriving from India, Burma, Argentina, the USA, Australia, and Roberts' army gobbled them up as they arrived. These same horses died in their tens of thousands in South Africa during this war. But the most dramatic and painful symptom of Roberts' logistic defect was the death rate from typhoid. Summer is the season of typhoid in South Africa. The disease spreads linked to poor hygiene and overcrowding. The death rate from typhoid in Bloemfontein accelerated and 10 soldiers a day began to die. By late March, every afternoon was punctuated by funeral processions, gaunt mules pulling a wagon with a handful of soldiers stumbling along with rifles reversed. They weren't even buried with a flag. There were too few flags and too many corpses. Men described the jingle of spurs, the shouts of the African drivers, the creak of the wheels. That was these men's last post. No friends nearby, no trumpet, no 21-gun salute, just the sound of a spade as they were covered over in death. The men of Roberts's army caused this typhoid epidemic. They kept drinking water that was unboiled directly from the Mura River, worsened by Bloemfontein's population that grew from 4,000 to 40,000 in a month. During this time, Lord Roberts invited a well-known British parliamentarian called William Burdett Coutts to visit Bloemfontein, who then went on to denounce the scandal of Roberts's hospitals in both Parliament in the UK and in the columns of the Times newspaper. He wrote... Hundreds of men were lying in the worst stages of typhoid, with only a blanket and a thin waterproof sheet between their aching bodies and the hard ground, without beds, stretchers or mattresses, without a single nurse amongst them, with only three doctors to attend to 350 patients. One of the doctors in Bloemfontein at that time was Dr. Arthur Conan Doyle, who went on to write the Sherlock Holmes stories later. Dr. Doyle confirmed most of what William Burdett Coutts had written. What is astonishing is that Lord Roberts ignored the reports of deaths. He did not care much about the poor trooper under his command. His long years in India had dulled his interest in his men, his complacency in dealing with typhoid. You know, he wrote the following. The health of the men is very good. There are some 2,000 in hospital, but this is only at the rate of 4%. Only at the rate of 4%. Odious, isn't it, that generals would fob off the deaths of their own men using a simple digit? You can imagine, had it been 10%, suddenly then Roberts would care. Horribly simplistic, perhaps, but that's essentially what Roberts was saying. Not enough were dying to be worried. Roberts had also offered amnesty to Free State Boers as soon as he took Bloemfontein and now kicked his heels as he waited for them to respond. At this point, Alfred Milner, the Cape Governor, also arrived and he was on a mission. Roberts had no idea, but Milner had made a secret alliance with two of the mine owners of the Transvaal, Alfred Byte and Julius Werner, and they were all worried. They heard the Boers were planning a scorched earth policy where the mines would be destroyed in Johannesburg, blown up, and the shafts had already been prepared. When Milner heard about the amnesty, he agreed, believing that meant the Boers may think twice about blowing up their mines. On March 28th, Milner was the guest at the banquet at the Railway Bureau, given by Lord Roberts. Imperial symbols glittered, swords and medals were all shiny in the gas lamp light where the elite of the empire gathered. 
Roberts, the hammer of the Boers, was joined by Rudyard Kipling, the Orpheus of the Empire, who rose to propose a toast, a short, sturdy figure, pale behind his black moustache and spectacles. Had Milner thought about it, he would have realised the irony. The previous big occasion at the Railway Bureau in Bloemfontein was when he'd met Oom Paul Kruer back in October 1899 to negotiate before the war began, and now they were in the same building, drinking champagne, toasting the imminent demise of the Boer republics. Winston Churchill, the Morning Post war correspondent, wrote, This wonderful little man, he meant Roberts, had suddenly appeared on the scene as if by enchantment the clouds had rolled away and the sun shone once again brightly on the British armies. Lord Roberts seemingly a hero basking in the glory. The sunshine was fleeting, as it sometimes is in South Africa, moments before a storm blots out the light and the African thunderstorm tears through the hearts of men and women to leave them shocked. And so it would be here with the empire propagandists calling time on this war. But for the next episode, we'll shift our gaze to Mafeking. I've waited some time to introduce this town into the series. It's a significant siege that led to thousands of British troops surrounded by 1,500 Boers. But also significant for the men involved included Lord Baden-Powell, who would use his experience in this town as the basis of what became the World Scout Movement. For South Africans, it's also the place where Sol Bleike, the black journalist, had been living, working as a translator. Significant because after the war, he was to be the prime organiser of a political party called the African National Congress. There are many parallels and echoes in this historical conflict, not least what Mafikeng means to many to this day who are scouts or who are Afrikaner nationalists or who are African nationalists. So join me next week for episode 29 of the Anglo-Boer War. Until then, please rate the podcast on iTunes, check out our website at abwarpodcast.com, and you can contact me directly on Twitter at Des Latham. Goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die oud Transvaal, daar waar my saar